everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Holy shit, the head of the Irish Rugby Football Union's Performance and Science Program, Nick Winkleman, brings so much to the conversation this week. He is a dynamic coach who is constantly refining his efficacy. He is obsessed with the science that explains how we learn movement. And Nick took himself to international settings to find new challenges and influences. Eventually, this led him to the sport of rugby. His chat with the crew extends far beyond the pitch and brings a depth to our shared love of performance training. And not only that, this guy is a coach slash DJ, and not the other way around. Here it is, episode 328. Are we live? So we have the world's most muscular DJ, and now we have the world's most thoughtful coach slash DJ. coach DJ. DJ slash coach, and not the other way around, which oh, I think is more meaningful. meaningful. <laughs> oh, a little Zoolander. Well played. I know. There's a few other Zoolander pieces that I wanted to throw in there. Uh, not technically live, but... You're listening to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm Luke. Tex. I'm John. And who you are listening to now is the world's most prolific DJ slash coach. And we'll get into that in just a second. But before we do, Tex, hit that button. Hit that button. Before we do, much like our friends, what were the characters? This is a sin. Uh... What are the characters' names in Wedding Crashers? Uh, I, Jeremy I, and what's fucking Uncle Jer? Uncle, what's uh, what's Owen Wilson's name? Uh, this hurts. This is bad. You said those books weren't yours. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say the two uh, DJs and hackers. Remember? Oh, you mean Acid Burn and Crash Override? No, the other oh, guys. Remember the guys. Asian guys? Yeah, they had like their their. They had to go to the party. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Jeremy and who? God, are, how are they? Uh, John Beckwith. John Beckwith. Yes. Uh, Bobby O'Toole, Thomas O'Shea. Jer- we're here to get Jeremy drunk. Gray. <laughs> but it's wedding season. No, wait. It's symposium season, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. The Power Athlete Symposium is in Austin, Texas, on December fifth, sixth, and seventh, at the two premier venues in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. Didn't get angry. Dang. That's right, people. Again, our capstone event, Power Athlete Symposium 2019, is being held here in Austin, Texas, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, December 5th, 6th, and 7th. It's in the heart of Central Texas, the capital, Austin. Venues at 800 Congress, right in the heart of downtown, just a few blocks away from the Capitol building. It's, it's epic. That's where our kickoff is going to be, our keynote speaker. Uh, we have our Wade's. Army, silent, auction, not so silent. Ladies and gentlemen, with all sorts of epic shit, uh, we got some really, really great auction prizes, including, so I talked with Rob this weekend for a Roll With Rob item. Oh, no. Go and on. he's kind of interested. So Rob Wolf people uh, is fucking coming in heavy, actually. He said he's been to over 100 Guns N' Roses shows. 
and Jit. He's Rob Wolf. Uh, sorry, Rob Wolf has been to a hundred Guns N' Roses shows and has bought a T-shirt at every single one. And he saved those T-shirts. I'm calling bullshit. I'm fucking that. telling you. He said he's caught over a hundred Guns N' Roses shows. So John, he's gonna donate five Rob Wolf originals from the vin, like yes, that he purchased. Big wow. Al. Hey, wow. we're yeah, yeah, no, video. I, I heard you. So uh, that's one auction item. The second auction item is Taste X. Oh, no, no, no. Come on, man. Callie's lined it up. No, I think it's got to be live at the symposium. <laughs> <laughs> Dramatic pause. I just, <laughs> I just swallowed my gum. Let me ask you this. Is it totally off the table? No. Yeah, let's... No, it's, yeah? It's for pediatric <laughs> cancer. Let's go. I'm going to cross $20,000. Like, yes. At this point, this episode is September 27th, Friday, and we are about 17th, 18th mm-hmm. at this date in time, and I'm already at $12,000. Uh-huh. It's inevitable. Yeah. Crossing that 20K mark. But on what stage do you want to be tased? Do you want do to do it in some is this about what closet? I want? It's about what the people want. I, I want represent to, the people. And I the people to, demand an onstage attendee tasing. Attendee tasing? Someone gets to auction, someone gets to tase you. Are you doing like the alligator clips that clip on? Or do we yeah, get to actually put the alligator. harpoons? No harpoons. You're not gonna get harpooned? I don't trust these these shots. There's gonna be people drinking and bidding, and then the drunkest person. When is Kelly got uh, when Kelly got um, tased. Did uh, they do the alligator clips, or was she, or would, did she get hit with the? Uh, I'm not sure. With the harpoons, uh, I think it was the guns. But recommended to me by police officers were the gator clips. For what? Because it's easier. No, because you can control exactly where the bandwidth of the lightning you ride goes. <laughs> ride the lightning. But with the <laughs> the the shot, when you're shot, you don't know where it's going. It yeah. could puncture not in the face. your spine. Not in the face. I don't. I'm not willing to take that risk. Mm. You have a spine. It's <laughs> a burn. <laughs> that's, that's that's a good one. You spineless son of a. It's one of the auction, it's auto- one of the auction items. Okay. My spine. <laughs> spine. No, a spine. Like a heart. Like you know, courage. Yeah, like Ten man heart. Yeah. Um, oh, my brain. Okay. I'm gonna bid on that. Okay. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here. <laughs> We're a few weeks out. You're saying there's a chance. Like one in a million. If. If I cross 25,000, I like this. So 20K for the taste. Okay. 25 for the live taste. Stage taste. Stage taste. What, do we, what are the harpoons at? What are the harpoons? The gator clips are at 25. Harpoons are at 30. <laughs> 30? 30K uh, and you get harpoons? This, uh, this is, you know, uh, you can't keep changing the goalposts. It's fine. Because I believe, I wholeheartedly believe that we can get this funded. There is someone out there willing to push this past whatever fucking goal line you put up there to get you harpooned in the location of their choice. What? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> you can't expand. In your hotel room? In, you, in their own hotel room <laughs> behind <laughs> closed doors. Uh, no, we learned from Rick Smith the dangers of hotel room tasing or electrocution. Ooh, do you want to do that Flashback? version? No. Ladies and gentlemen, go back and listen to the Rick Smith, founder of Taser. Right, International. Taser International. He has an epic story of two very promiscuous and exploratory oh. individuals tasing themselves to death rectally. <laughs> well, I think what they were doing is they hooked the, tra- the taser up to an anal probe uh-huh. and then fucking cooked themselves. 
Another Saturday. No? Yeah. Well, the wedding ring was. So where's the probe? So where's the What's probe? the probe at? 35? No probe. No probe? No probe. So you're saying there's a chance. No. Okay, bringing us back on topic, people. The whole point is we're raising funds for Wade's Army, the Wade's Army silent auction. The symposium is coming bigger and better than ever. We've ditched a clinic. It's not a conference. It's an experience. It is an experience that really I think only this crew could put on. So it's unlike any other symposium, and it's unlike any other conference that you've ever been to. That's a fact. That is a fact. If you want to learn more about this, go to events.powerathletehq.com slash symposium. Now enough about us, enough about the symposium. Let's get on with DJ Move Ray, right? Is it Move Ray? Is that yeah, how you Latin say it? from Move. All right. Mint. Yeah, Nick Wickelman, who is a former Exos dude who's overseeing... Irish Rugby so, Union. So, yeah, Rugby Strength League is different than Rugby yeah. Union. Strength and conditioning. Very fucking, like, a wide net this dude's casting. Pretty cool talk. Um, and, yeah, former U.S. dude who decided to pull the ripcord and go Ex, move abroad. Expat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, very cool talk. Tune in. Is it time to bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme? You mean tune in Tokyo? Like with Gator Clips? Let's do it. That's your line. Let's do it. Let's do it. Text beat me a ping pong this morning. Twice. Oh, John got a table okay. for the office. and we That have can like, be demoralizing. Today I mean, was, I'll tell you what, usually when we're playing like pickleball, ping pong, or even spike ball, like I'm okay, like I'm not okay with losing, but I know what I've done to lose. Well, you're thinking too internally, which is <sighs> not about what our conversation <laughs> will go into today. I don't think at all. <laughs> but yeah, I got I got beat today, Nick and Jay Welly. You know, bl- there's blood in the water, buddy. If you want to beat down after this, uh, you know what I um, I just think your ping pong game. You're getting too fancy. You're trying to do too much stuff. You're I'm like top bored. spin, back spin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to be. I have eight. singular focus as the only thing that matters mm-hmm. is winning. It's like if I had a bonsai tree, I wouldn't. I wouldn't clip. I just fucking cut it down. And get a new one. I'm fucking bored with it already. I don't even have one. I'm bored with my bonsai tree. I have no patience for that. Oh my goodness! I tell you what, I was in uh, I was in China one time, and we were speaking to one of their their provincial uh, t- table tennis contingents, and you know they had all the varied coaches in the front of the room, and they said, "Is there anything special you would like to do in our in our town in our province?" I said, "My gosh, I, I'd love I'd love a proper you know table tennis." racket paddle whatever you guys call it like no problem we'll take you to the table tennis center you will you will warm up our athletes we will then teach you table tennis and you'll get it you get your own paddle so warm them up no english at all no chinese just complete gestures we had a hell of a time and then i end this this small gal who was watching she walks in you're like this is going to be your coach and again I couldn't speak Mandarin. She couldn't speak English. So she's just showing me the gestures. We start to play and she starts to feed the balls and I'm trying to get it over. Absolutely miserable. I start to get a rhythm and she speeds it up a little bit. And I just, I I go from having confidence, confidence is gone again. And inevitably the translator pulls me aside. He's like, Nick, what you have to understand is you playing table tennis with her is like someone in Chicago playing a pickup game of basketball with Michael Jordan. She's won two gold medals, and she's the most decorated table tennis person in the country. No so shit. Don't don't feel that bad, man. Don't feel that bad. At so least my, getting my ass kicked by her was an absolute honor, though. I don't oh, know yeah. if you can say that. I don't know no, if you can say that not. about Tex. No, I, you know what? I, I can't. 
I can't. I can't go home tonight. I hope you're happy. I have to leave my wife and my newborn daughter at yeah, home. Get, I have to get your reps sleep in. in the backyard. No, no, no. You need to stay up all night playing table tennis instead of caring for again your child. <laughs> Uh, well, Nick, man, thanks for hopping on the show. You know, uh, I guess you get everyone got a, some insight to what's going on with the table tennis game on this podcast. But why don't we uh, why don't we give the listeners a little bit of background on you, man? So, so take the mic and run as long as you want. Give these guys a deep dive of who you are and what you're doing. Well, first and foremost, appreciate you guys having me on. It's always an honor to to share a story, and I think you know we all have a story, and uh, mine is is quite similar. It might be of interest to some. Uh, on how I got into this this great industry of fitness, strength, conditioning, athletic performance, whatever we're calling it these days. Um, but like most, you know, I was a young athlete in, in high school is probably where everything kicked off for me, multiple sports. And, you know, I, I was an average American football player, but something about the process of training for the game always spoke to me. And when I was in high school, we had this guy named Rudy. And, and Rudy, funny enough, like the Rudy character in the Notre Dame film, he had that kind of spirit about him. So he worked at Costco. He'd rock up around 2.33 every day just to get in the gym 30 minutes before school ended. And everybody would go in there. Didn't matter what the sport was. Everybody would go in there. And, and, a, and a small group of individuals would literally go in there every day. And, and I was one such individual because I felt my success under the bar was far better than with the pigskin. So I just kept going back for more. And what was unique about Rudy is we probably did the exact same program for the four years that I was there. Every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the exact same. Now, we all got better because we were youngsters. But the key thing about this guy is he, he cared. He cared so much for the people that were walking in there every single day. I don't even think he got paid. He purely did it out of the goodness of his heart. And when I saw how much I improved physically, but more importantly, mentally, I said to myself, man, this is what I got to do with my life. If I can add to people the same way that this guy has added to me, I will have a, a life fulfilled. So inevitably, that manifested into me going into college and saying, hey, is there some kind of exercise, sports science thing that I can do at Oregon State University? And, and ultimately, you know, there was an exercise sports science degree. So I went into that, not really knowing what I wanted to do on the back end. At first, I actually wanted to go pre-med. So I was taking all the extra courses. And funny enough, even at that time, I was 18, I told my advisor, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. But for me, it's important to understand what the athlete is going through. Because if I understand what the athlete is going through, I can do a better job from a medical perspective in supporting their journey. So even back then, I had this kind of idea that the integration of high performance seemed to matter a whole lot. So inevitably, I went through that program at Oregon State, and I was lucky enough to find out about this course my sophomore year. It was this in-house personal training cert course to actually become a personal trainer and work at the rec center. So for me, I thought that's a great idea. I can make a bit of money on the side, but more importantly, I can start to apply this stuff I'm learning in class every single day. And for those of us who have taken an exercise sports science degree, you know, in the early 21st century, you know that it's heavily theory and you're not necessarily getting in anything concrete on how to coach people or how to develop a best practice in a weight room. So for me, it was a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal outlet to have that. And inevitably, fast forward, that got me to meet a guy named Guido Van Rysigam. And Guido Van Rysigam was kind of Rudy 2.0 for me. Guido's a guy, and his story's relevant to mine. He was born in Belgium. 
literally had nothing to his name, but fell in love with baseball. He found that baseball was his calling. So this guy taught himself English, had a small family, and wrote a shoulder rehabilitation program, took that, got on a plane, and literally moved his family to the United States, walked into an interview with the Seattle Mariners, said, listen, I'm a, nur I'm a nurse by trade. I have a medical background. I have a deep interest in baseball. I'm applying for this athletic trainer job. I know I'm not an athletic trainer, but here's a shoulder manual that I've designed on my own experience. The guy was so impressed with him. He didn't give him a job, but he said, listen, I'm going to support you. And long story short, this guy goes to U of O, get a master's in sports science, and spends over 14 years in professional baseball. Credit to him. When minor league baseball had wore him and his family down to a core, he says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to go to Oregon State University, not work in any sport. I'm literally going to go work in the corner of the rec center, helping students and professors and any odd recreational athlete. And I'm going to allow my wife and my family to be front and center. So hiding in this little corner of Oregon State University is this elite sports med practitioner. So after I graduated into this program, I'm literally just doing your onesie, twosie, personal training, starting to apply the stuff I'm learning. I meet this guy, Guido. He pulls me into his office and says, hey, I've heard good things about you, but you got to understand that you want me to help you. You need to show up when I tell you to show up. You need to do everything I'm going to ask you to do. This is going to feel like a degree while you're getting your degree. And if you're not up for it, get out of my office. And it was that straight and narrow. It wasn't harsh. It was just authentic. And Already right there, I started to get a sense of what a European style might be. So long story short, spent three of those four years working under him, just absolutely gaining the practical education along with theoretical. And it was this guy that introduced me to Mark Verstegen. See, as it were, when he left the Baltimore Orioles, it was that same exact year that Mark Verstegen was leading IPI to start his new facility, Athletes Performance in Tempe, Arizona. And he asked Guido to come along with him. But again, Guido had already made his decision. He was going to that small corner of Oregon State University. But when I walked into his office that, that day and got to know him, shortly after, he pulled out that pamphlet. I don't know if you've ever seen this trifold of Mark Verstegen with his flat top. Looks very similar to the picture of him and Nomar Garciaparo when he had that uh, standout article in Sports Illustrated. But this looked like a bad dude. And he said, listen, if you want to be the best in athletic performance or strength conditioning, this is the guy you need to go work with. I know him. I've seen him firsthand. He's going to help you take your career to the next level. So it was literally three years of working with Guido and having this trifold on my desk that motivated me to say, okay, next step is, is athlete's performance. So in 2006, finally got the internship. Now, I, I think some people find the way I got the internship to be quite interesting. I literally flew to Phoenix, Arizona. I had no appointment. There wasn't like a phone number that I could just call and say, hey, can I get an appointment with Mark Verstegen? Didn't work that way. So Guido helped me put together this whole portfolio. I flew out there and I cold called. Rocked up, walked the two miles in the blistering sun down the long driveway into the old facility. And unfortunately, Mark wasn't there. But the gal who uh, worked the front desk was, and she's like, listen, you put so much time and effort into this. Let me give you a tour. So literally, as I'm walking around this place, I'm seeing the likes of Luke Richardson, you know, has won a, a Super Bowl with the Broncos. Uh, I, I, I see Derelecto, who's worked in the NBA, he's worked in the NFL, he's now working for Altus, and a number of other elite coaches who have all since graduated on to professional sport. Little would I know that I'd be working with these individuals in six months' time. But I get back home, you know, Mark Verstegen wasn't there, I, I wasn't expecting anything. 
But two weeks later, I get this email that says, hey, listen, we got your manual. Uh, we know Guido. We'd like to give you an internship. I mean, literally for me, pinnacle moment in my life. It's like everything I've been working to, that had to happen, and it did. So 2006, move out to Arizona. I spent some time with House. Uh, Joe Ken, when he was still at Arizona State University, my internship starts up and I'm going through this process. And, and it was it was a it was a difficult internship. You know, it was one of those things where I was Mr. Big Dog, you know, at Oregon State University, learning how to coach. And it was like I had to start again. I had to learn to be the person who was just listening, not talking. And, and I went through hard yards in that kind of six month time period. But I grew immensely as a coach and inevitably I was offered a position to come on board full time uh, a few weeks before the internship was over. And it's like, okay, I had Rudy, I had Guido, and now I had the opportunity. Now it had to be about Nick. It had to be about what I can bring to this role. And, you know, it was just the most formative years of my life. And it was the most important experience to date. But from 2006 to 2016, I had the honor of, of living out a dream. I mean, literally, you guys, my dream was to work at this place, Athletes Performance, now known as Exos. And to be able to spend 10 years and have those be the 10 most important years of, of my development was just unbelievable. Um, in my time there, for those who are not familiar with Athletes Performance or Exos, it's basically a private high-performance center that caters to, when I started, just elite athletes. But now it caters to elite military, Google, Intel, as well as the pro athletes. Notably, the NFL Combine Development is kind of how it's got its name. And while I was there, two major roles. I had more than two, but two major roles. Uh, one was overseeing the NFL Combine Development Program. So first I had to get in and then I had to earn the right to, to run that program. So I took that over in 2009 and did that until I left in 2016. But at the same time, I had the opportunity to take over our education department from a guy named Joe Gomes, who provided great leadership when I first started there. And ultimately, when I started with the education, we were running these week-long mentorships, literally only in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I left in 2016, I think we were running courses in 23 different countries. So to be able to have a role where I not only got to, to literally travel around the world helping coaches get better, but at the same time, develop myself as a coach, to be able to have those two interactions simultaneous has just given me a unique, formative experience around the art and science of what it truly means uh, to, to be a coach. And inevitably, that brings us up to present day. You know, after 10 years at Exos, I felt they had added as much to me as they could. And I felt I had to add as much to them as I could. And at that point, it was, it was a natural break point to try something new and to start again and to challenge myself you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally, both in my career, but also in my life. And so I cast a very wide net trying to find the right opportunity for me and my family. I had no preconceived notions on what that would be. I looked at Olympic sports. I looked at academia. You know, I looked at pro sport. But the one thing is I looked only outside the United States. I wanted to leave, not because I didn't love my home, but I know how critical environment is. If I truly want to get better, I needed that to be imposed on me, which means I had to be somewhere that was foreign in every sense of the word. And as it would happen, uh, the 2015 Rugby World Cup had ended. Like most sports and most four-year campaigns, there's always going to be a shuffle. And lucky for me, there was a shuffle at Irish Rugby. And one of my close friends is very close with my boss, David Nusifora, and just put my name forward. It started out with a phone call. As it was, you know, I was, I was going to be in the UK in December of 2015. And we were able to sit down for a dinner, talk shop, talk my philosophy. And it was a bit of hand in glove. 
And the last question I asked him after the job was offered, I said, you know, are you concerned at all that I don't have a rugby background? And he said to me, I'm not if you're not. Because at the end of the day, I'm bringing you in for what you can bring and the new ideas that you might have. You can always learn this game. So I'm lucky now. You know, I think very few people uh, find one boss or, or occupation or workplace that they absolutely love and thrive in. And I can say I found two. I'm two for two. Uh, the people that I work with and work for are, are, are second to none. They're world class. And I have to say that, that I'm absolutely privileged and humbled to, to have this title, Head of Athletic Performance and Science for Irish Rugby, where I am responsible for supporting not only the players throughout the entire country, but also, you know, in excess of, of 30 different coaches who work across our various levels. You know, I take it as a personal responsibility to make sure that I'm supporting their journey and developing them the same way they are supporting the journey and developing our players. Because uh, ultimately, if I had to boil my philosophy down in my current role, you know, coach development is player development. We get our people right, they're going to get our players right. And that brings us up to present day. And, and as you know, our, our team uh, left about a week ago for Japan, and we have our first World Cup match uh, this weekend. When I got the position four years ago, I said I have one objective to do the best job I can, but through that, help us uh, excel and, and succeed in a manner that we had never done before in the World Cup. And, and now we'll see uh, all that work come together, not only for myself, but the great people I work with. I think it's pretty interesting uh, that you desi- you were, you're poking around international gigs. What, what planted that seed? Was that a, uh, talking with a mentor? Was it uh, maybe a colleague made a similar move? But why, why pull the ripcord on the U.S.? You know, I, I don't know. I think on one hand, having worked at Exos, it, it afforded me the opportunity to work with players entering in and already in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, Olympic sports. I, I had had a, a fair tour of all the American sports. And at the same time, I had an opportunity to present throughout the world. And I got to see other countries, other cultures, and other sports that I was less familiar with. I felt if I was going to make a jump, rugby would be a logical one because there are quite a few physical and cultural sporting-wise parallels between American football and rugby. And the reality is, for me, it it probably was driven more from the desire to have a a life experience than it was anything to do with maybe the, the, the lack of affinity towards the sports in the United States. So, you know, I started there. If that had run dry, would I have looked back within the United States? Yeah, sure. I absolutely would. But something in my intuition, being as science-based as I am, something in my intuition really said, let's leave, let's try something. Our kids are still young. Let's get out there and experience the world. Yeah, that's legit. Mm -hmm. I'm on board. I often think when, if Austin dries up, (laughs) where do we go from here? (laughs) Like, do we go, do we go to Lima? Brazil is starting U.S. football, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, but also I, I can understand the idea that, um, you know, hey, you're an American football player and it's kind of the only thing you knew to be able to push yourself outside uh, into a new comfort or out of your comfort zone into a new place and do something new. I mean, it's pretty exciting. So, uh, no, I, I used to train at Athletes Performance with Bruce Stegen out in uh, Carson. And so, yeah, I know a bunch of those awesome. guys. Um, God, I want to say it was like Vaso and Vaso. Uh, yeah, uh, he was legit cat, but yeah. And, uh, and then, um, yeah, Joe Gomes is actually, I think he's working for Ken Ford now. Uh, okay. yeah. Cause he I went up, uh, yeah, yeah. Cause he was the guy at the Raiders. Yes, he was. And yeah. then he left there and obviously, you know, the Raiders is the perfect, the, I guess the perpetual shit show. 
for coaches and athletes. So yeah, he ended up pulling. So now he, I think he's working with uh, Ken Ford over at the uh, HMIC Institute of Human and Machine Cognition. Yeah, like I don't really know what he's doing, but I think he's probably just hanging out having lunch with Ken. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if it's an idea factory, Joe Gomes will be king of that place because the man's got more ideas than anyone I've ever met. So. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've been on email with him. I've never had the opportunity to sit with him. Um, you know, the, uh, but yeah, uh, it's funny to see Verstegen's real, like, uh, I don't know how I would say it, like just the evolution to see it go from API into Exos and really what they've gone into. I mean, I was down in, uh, um, what was it up in, uh, North Florida, their, their Institute with that's hooked up at the Pensacola. Andrews. Yeah, yeah. Pensacola. Yeah. And I went in there and was like, man, this is, this is impressive. So. Well, you know, it, well, what's interesting about Verstegen is he's, he's stayed true to his mission. You know, a lot of people have asked me about, you know, has the place changed? I'm like, not really. It, it, it's evolved. But the key thing is when I, when I started, I think I was at one of the last retreats was in 2006. And I'll never forget, he got up on stage to the whole group. And, you know, he's an inspirational character just standing there, let alone when he speaks. But he said, you know, athletes performance at the time is about one thing. It's about positively influencing as many lives as possible. Full stop. That's the dude's mission. And the reality is, as, as anyone knows who works in pro sport, you know, especially on the private side, you can only financially make so much working with professional athletes. So you have to start to scale. But as you scale, you get into youth, you get into general population. And then the evolution for there was, well, how do we use technology and our systems to start impacting the military, to start impacting corporate wellness? And ultimately, once corporate wellness and, and military, especially big military hit, now he had the platform to truly take everything he had been working and vetting on the pro athlete side and scale it through kind of his core performance brand to the rest of the world. And credit to him, he has now done that. And some people might throw a little heat or shade at the idea that, oh, it's not what he used to be. Well, the reality is if you look at the NFL combine results and the amount of people they're supporting, they're doing just fine. That methodology is not failing anybody. In fact, it's scaling to everybody. And I think the reality is the man's achieving his mission and, and I back him all the way. I'd love to get in the, the rugby side of things. So I, yeah. from what I understand, the approach to that sport and soccer development is completely different than we take development in the United States. So I'm curious how deep your Ireland rugby union goes. Like, is it youth development leagues? How much training are you doing with those kids? And what's yeah. the development system to get the guys to make the team that you sent over to Japan? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll start at the thousand foot view and then I'll, I'll dip down into the 10 foot view. So to help the listeners understand Irish rugby, which I think is, is a fair example of how most rugby unions are structurally designed, even though we're organized slightly different, is it works as follows. So Irish Rugby Union is, as far as everyone's concerned, the governing body of rugby within, within Ireland. And obviously you have World Rugby that regulates it worldwide, so we report into them. Uh, within Ireland, there are four provinces or, or four states, if you would. And those are uh, Leinster, Munster, Connacht, and Ulster. And each of those provinces has a professional rugby team. Okay, and those four professional rugby teams play within a league like the NFL called the Pro 14 or the Guinness Pro 14. So as you might guess, there's 14 teams that operate in that. We have four of them. And European sports are interesting 
and that because the countries are so small, a, a natural thing that has occurred is you not only play in your, your league, which for us, again, is the Pro 14, but you also then play, if you're good enough, in a European league where it's the best teams across all the varied leagues. So in our case, our guys not only play in the Pro 14, but they play in kind of the European Championship. So it's great for us to have all four of them playing at that highest level because that ensures from a development perspective, they're professionally getting exposed to the most rigorous rugby that is on offer in the Northern Hemisphere, which obviously sets those players up very well when they have to go into another level, which is international rugby, which is the, is the key, let's say, version of the game within the actual game of rugby worldwide. So insofar as each of those four, they, they mirror each other from a development perspective, and you can think of it as three tiers. So tier number one is what we call the talent pathway. And the talent pathway is going to be made up of players that are in high school or what they call secondary school here and just beyond. So you're looking at between 16 and 19 year olds is kind of that age range in this talent pathway. From the talent pathway, then you graduate into the academy. So you're out of school. Most of them are now in college, but they go into an academy program. And within our professional teams, we typically hold about 20 players within our academy. And they're going to be anywhere between 19 to 22-year-old. And then from your academy, if you're good enough, you graduate into the senior squad. And our senior squads will have approximately 40 players, knowing that obviously 15 players start on any given day. 23 players are brought into any given match, including those subs. Okay? So those are the three tiers. Uh, from a development perspective, though, Rugby in, in the country goes all the way down to what they call minis, where it's just basically touch rugby, and you see a bunch of these six-year-olds running around trying to figure out where to throw this ball, where to move their bodies. So the cool thing is, even though what I've described there is the professional arm of the game, within just outside my door, we have the domestic side of our game, which supports all the participation rugby. And ultimately, they are about getting the greatest number of individuals to play the game in the country and enjoy doing it because it is a game that has lifelong support. I mean, you still see on the club side, which is the non-professional, people playing this well into their late 20s and 30, early 30s, even if they're not playing professional rugby. So it truly is a sport in the country that pe people can play for the vast majority of at least the, the formative years of their life. Um, within that, then, you've seen that graduation within each of those four provinces. Ultimately, the way it works nationally is we have a couple different representative squads. So we have under-18s, under-19s, and under-20s. So those are all the representative sides where you get to play for your country. And then, obviously, we have our men's national team, our women's national team, and then a sport you guys might be familiar with, but that's the, the version of the game now that is called Sevens. So instead of 15 people playing either side, seven individuals are playing. And that's now an Olympic sport. So we have a full-time program for the sevens. And then we have the men's and women's 15s and the representative sides, 20s, 19s, and 18s. So from a development perspective, we start, we start fairly young. But really, if you were to give it an age, probably 16 years old. And my position is to ensure that across all of those le levels, that athletic development is marrying up with the needs uh, at that specific level from a rugby perspective. You got any kids that play both 15s and 7s, or are you almost specialized to a path within those? Because I know those sports are very different. No, it's a, it's a fantastic question. You know, we, we talk about 7s being one of the best developmental tools that we have because, one, it's a simpler version of the game. There's 7 of you, not 15. 
The reality is because there's seven, not 15, but it's played on the same size pitch or field, it's more spread out. So you're going to have more touches on the ball. You're going to have to learn to move in space. It's going to force speed and agility out of you. So if you kind of think of your, your summer flag football that you'd play from a development perspective in high school and college, sevens almost provides that exact same kind of a stimulus. And then you get the more touches. And from an athletic development perspective, it's going to challenge you. you know, even though uh, the, the game is significantly shorter, the fitness required from an anaerobic perspective out of these players is ridiculous. And we've had plenty of players go from, let's say, an academy program playing 15s all their life, dip into the sevens for a period of time. And they'll be the first ones to tell you that from a fitness perspective, it is a completely different game. So we see it as a tremendous development tool all the way up into our academies. You know, ultimately, once you get probably to that early to, to, to mid-20s, you're going to have to make a decision because there are specific attributes of sevens and specific attributes of 15s that are required and do require a specific specialization. But ultimately, we see it as a developmental tool from the very first start, the time they start all the way up into our academy. Does one reign supreme? Luke and I were down in Australia for the last World Cup and yeah. just went to some bars to experience it. And I don't know, it was, it was crazy. 15 was was it was about, but the Olympics, I didn't feel that buzz for the sevens. You, you know, it's the game's been around a long time, but insofar as, let's say, uh, popular media, sevens is the new kid on the block. So it's still, it's still finding its feet. I do believe the Olympics has given it a mass, massive and justified boost. And specifically, if you look at rugby in the United States, I, I think you have to give massive credit to the sevens. If you look at how good the men and the women are, you know, I was, I was just in uh, Paris earlier this year watching the Paris Sevens, and I was watching the U.S. boys play, and it was a bunch of old school football players in there who were just absolutely beating teams up. Okay, they were beating teams up. Now, when they came up against the Fijian side, who have unbelievable ball handling skills, they don't just, th they don't just throw to people. They throw to where the people are going to be. They, you literally think they're telepathic when they're playing this game. The same thing about wait. Luke Summers with ball handling skills. <laughs> Great ball handling. <laughs> one hand, two hand, one ball, two ball. Like, I got it all. Unbelievable. Absolutely. So, but, so, uh, so I would think the Fijians. They got dismantled. I would so. think the Fijians, uh, obviously, you said uh, extremely skilled, but also coming from those that island, um, you know, lineage, tend to be extremely hard-headed and big hitters. You, you have no doubt. They had no problem going pound for pound with the boys and they also could move them around them at will. So I think the reality is um, the biggest difference between American football and, and rugby, whether it's sevens or fifteens, is in American football, it's point and click. I can say, listen, this is your position. That's the guy you need to hit or stop from hitting your guy. Go get him. And you need to remember how to do that across these X amount of 100 plays. So you need to be very one-dimensional and be able to bring that one dimension and have a good memory for the 100 freaking plays that you need to know. When it comes to rugby, the second the freaking game begins, you have to be able to play what's in front of you. And we talk about pictures. The word pictures is used quite a bit in free-flowing sports like rugby and soccer. And that You have to be able to see these pictures to know, do I run? Uh, do, I, do I take the hit? Do I pass? Right? Do I kick? And those decisions are always multiple, and you're doing that constantly throughout the game. So even though there are set pieces and set plays, and there is some decision-making frameworks such as when you're in this part of the field, if you don't after three phases move the ball forward, kick into space, some of that exists. 
the vast majority is dependent on the player's ability just to make good decisions. So why do I bring that up? The reality is you need to play this game young and you need to consistently play it. And so until America starts playing the game younger, they're not going to be able to go toe-to-toe in the 15s game. And I think it'll take them a little bit longer in the sevens. But because sevens is such a physically dominant game, I believe that's why America is having such success so early because they're able to use physical attributes to overcome any skill development still naturally going on. Well, just seeing some of the speed. I mean, when we were watching the sevens recently, um, just seeing like them get to that outside pitch and like I forgot who the black dude was that they pitched on the outside. I mean, the guy probably ran like a nine eight hundred. And he was just motoring past people. I mean, those those athletes exist. But um, the one thing that always struck me about rugby is that the inherent like learning of the position uh, and just learning of the game. And like, I mean, we've been in New Zealand, we've been all over the world. And like, if you're driving and you drive by a field, you're going to see little kids out there playing rugby, you know, tossing the ball. It's just what they do. I mean, it's, it's similar for American football, though. I mean, how many times do they bring people over? And I, I, I've saw it all the time. They would bring like a foreigner in or some guy and he just didn't have that football wherewithal you know from just not being ingrained in the culture and they they pick it up over time but i think rugby and some of those sports are even more so well what we love about rugby is it's an inclusive sport i mean they literally talk about it It suits every shape and size you know you can have you have individuals on there that are going to be fast and can be lean and be highly skilled you have other individuals that by the very nature of their role they need to be bigger and they're probably going to be a little bit slower but the reality is they're not going to need to run 40 meters either So because it's such an inclusive sport, I think that's one of the reasons it's so successful as a dominant force that uh, from kids growing up playing old when uh, in in Europe. So. So it's Carlin Isles, John. Oh, dude. The Ashland University track in football. And now he's. What did say he ran the hundred in? I I, like I I forgot they threw it out there. I mean, it was a sub 10 hundred. 60 meter dash was 6.68. Yeah, so he's he's average. Yeah, no, that's he's a sub ten guy. I mean, they're, like at the, at oh, the end of the here's his hundred ten point thirteen seconds. So yeah, so he's that's he's a ten one hundred. Thirty sixth fastest person in the United States. Let's see, we got me. <laughs> the uh, the 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 irony of this is when I went to college, uh, we had a guy named Brandon Willis who was our running back who uh, coming out of high school I think ran like a ten two hundred out of high school. And like, uh, you know, that was the the fun thing about the NFL and also in college is like just the most gifted genetic freaks out there. And it's like if they can just not fuck it up, they'll get to play. So, Nick, on that note, man, you've so you've straddled the lines, right? You've been at Exos working with some of the most skilled freaks. We'll call them mutants. Right. And now you're getting, enough, they take it as a compliment. Yeah. 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 You know, and now you're getting access to that over the pond, but in a different sport. Now, I know this is like. A big yeah, but so if you were to just level out that that rugby IQ across, let's say, you know, some of the premier athletes in the NFL versus, uh, you know, those Fijian players like does the U.S. have the genetic pool to be a world class rugby club, assuming, like you said, there is this early adoption and lifelong career. Okay. There are, I don't know how many people are in New Zealand. There are approximately about three and a half million. I think there's about three and a half million. It's roughly the size of Orange County, Southern California. So, so, so Ireland just tops out in the Republic of Ireland, uh, 4.6 million. Okay. There are 333 million people in the United States. 
The answer unequivocally to that question, insert any sport you want, is yes. Okay? USA! USA! Massive population! Massive population! Well, you just see it's you know got a bigger, like, it's, bigger so, pool you, to pull from. You made, you made the exact point, though. It's a matter of prioritizing it and, and making it a sport that kids want to play mm-hmm. young. There's no, que- there's no question that physically they would have the assets to be one of, if not the best teams in the world. But if you, if you really get into the history of Irish rugby and English rugby and, and all the major sides, I mean, it is deep-seated. And there's a, love for, there's a love for this that goes beyond just training during the week. I and mean, you guys said you've been, you've been in New Zealand, you've been to some of these big countries that play this game, and it is literally the lifeblood of what they do. And there's just a desire there that you'd also have to factor in if you want to be the best in the world. Do, uh, can, can you get into like a little bit into the training? Um, I'm always kind of fascinated with, um, I mean, you know, like well, America. Let's, let's do two parts of that. Like where the training was and where it's evolving to, you know well, what I mean? I, because I, Yeah. I mean, um, so like, I mean, it's gotta be 10 years ago. I got hit up by a coach who was following our stuff and, uh, he asked me to help him with some programming for like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Aussie rules football. And I remember I sat down, he sent me a bunch of video and there he was sent me all these like, uh, like, you know, the average player runs between 10 and 15 kilometers per, per practice per game. And then like went through all these injuries and everything. And it was like, and then I, when they shipped me over their training, it was like, no, everything was like three sets of 10, three sets of 12, you know, moderate weights, 50 to 60%. And I'm like, so you guys go in the weight room and just do more volume after just running and doing all this volume. And they really didn't have a concept of how to apply like actual, you know, like power development into this type of deal. And for a country that is like, in terms of, um, what's pretty fascinating, I think for me, at least with like Australia is there are so many sports scientists. I mean, they have taken this thing down to this like research theoretical level, but just not really up in terms of the application part, like we are here in the U S and I think the, the global market. So I just wonder with, uh, you know, like what strength and conditioning looked like when you showed up and what it's kind of evolving into. So credit to our our coaches here on the ground. Uh, When I walked into Irish rugby and I remember the first couple months touring the four provinces, I mean, we have some absolutely switched on SNC practitioners in this game. The nature of it is, you know, rugby isn't football. It, is, it isn't soccer. It, it isn't going to be the wealthiest sport out there. Our players don't make a fraction of what a Premier League soccer player would make. So ultimately, Irish rugby being what we call a centralized union, and that all four of those provinces, all four of those teams wrap up under the remit of the governing body, so to speak, we take player development and player welfare very seriously. So I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, the likes of guys like Liam Hennessy, who started Satanta, which is a very popular MSC program now within strength conditioning. He was in this role a few years back. So they had invested quite a bit in getting good staff on the ground from a high-performance unit perspective. Was there room for improvement when I arrived? Absolutely. The coaches would have said that themselves because there's always room for improvement. So maybe to answer the first part of that question, where was it and where is it going, I can give you the feedback of where it was described to me when I arrived insofar as the evolution that the coaches here on the ground had faced. And that is when you, when you look back, you know, the sport has only been professional since the mid nineties. So it literally was the type of game where people got together on the weekend, they play, and then they, they go off to the clubhouse and have their beers. And it was an amateur type sport ethos. It was played for purely the love of the game, which is why the community support and love for it is so freaking strong. 
But ultimately, once strength conditioning got brought in early on, it was a matter of trying to make players these massive behemoths. And American football went through that exact same phase where it was about size, strength, size, strength, and speed, and power, and leanness. And insofar as those relate to fitness, and to say the least of agility, those probably were on the back burner. I mean, the reality is still in our industry, we call ourselves strength and conditioning coaches. That suggests we develop strength and conditioning. There's so much more to what we do, which is why we've shifted titles to athletic performance and athletic development. So when I arrived, I would definitely say that was part of the narrative in that at the very least coaches were concerned. They didn't want this new person coming in from American football saying, hey, we're just going to chase size and strength, size and strength. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not naive to the fact that, especially with certain positions, size is important. Strength is obviously critical. Take the scrum. Take the tackling technique that we need to be able to deploy. Strength is critical, but it couldn't be the only narrative that we were banging on about. So when I arrived, I think that was already well on its way uh, to changing. You know, power was in the mix. Speed was in the mix. These kind of other physical assets. And you guys mentioned Aussie Rules Football which is a high running tempo game. Well, over here we have Gaelic football and hurling. And they play on a pitch, a field that is bigger than rugby. And rugby plays on a pitch that is bigger than American football. So a massive, massive pitch. And so as a country, these individuals, they can run. So fitness is in the blood and fitness is always a massive focus. So when I rocked up, I'm like, yeah, strength is pretty good. We're very, very fit. There's a great focus on fitness. Power is in the narrative, plyometrics are in the narrative, but probably there was an area, and everyone would have agreed, and I don't want to make it sound like this was a blind spot, but I probably shined a light because of my background on movement skill development, and everybody soaked it up like a sponge. And what I mean by movement skill development, I said, listen, we have to do for rugby what rugby as a, a sport doesn't do for itself. And so I always challenge our coaches to ask the following question. What does my sport need, but does not develop just by playing it? What does my sport need, but does not develop just by playing it? And ultimately, I think anyone working in sport should ask themselves that question. And that's going to get you mighty close to what you need to be emphasizing or focusing on as a strength conditioning coach. And what we realized is the way we approached, let's say, some of our work in movement preparation, formerly known as the warm up, um, the emphasis that we placed on linear speed development, the emphasis we placed on multi-directional speed development, the emphasis we placed on what we call movement health, which by my old standards would have been pillar prep or prehab. These were all really critical areas that would not only support the vehicle needed to translate strength and power into its physical form on the pitch, but also quality movement should help us have a more robust athlete. So ultimately that I'd like to think is the area where I was able to bring an accelerant or an emphasis point. So it was a matter of bringing in guys like Ian Jeffries to talk about multidirectional speed. You know, I was talking about speed development, coaching and cueing. We brought in Dan Baker to talk about his athletic development models. And so we brought in a lot of individuals just to add stimulus. And now the provinces, our professional teams have taken on that information and they're driving those narratives themselves. So we haven't gotten into our structure, but the key thing is, you know, we try as, as a country to look at systemic opportunities for improvement. And then I try to come up with, in collaboration with our strength coaches, the best way to make that change. 
A lot of what I'm describing here has to do with our CPD. So we have massive professional development models that allow us to deploy these changes and backfill these blind spots. But equally, some of the, the solutions came into collecting more, more data. So you know, just to talk about where training has moved, we now collect data on any quality that, that one, we can collect data on, but that we feel is critical to the, the human performance narrative. So just to give you some context, put it in your mind. Imagine you had four NFL teams that have to get along. They play each other, but they also have to have the collective goodness knowing that all their players need to play for one team to represent the country. So all four of our teams are now aligned on how we collect strength data, how we collect GPS data, um, how we collect wellness and musculoskeletal data. We use similar technology, which is subsidized by Irish rugby. We all have an access the exact same professional development days. Our leadership group is literally made up of the guys that compete against each other. And the reality is we have created an ethos that is, as much as I want to beat you when I play you, I know the value I will gain from you is far more important. And ultimately, these four individuals work in such similar circumstances that when one person is nailing something and the other person is struggling, they can learn from each other so quickly. And they know that that's going to get repaid because they're probably doing something that, that other person might be struggling with. Um, ultimately, then, to, to I tangent there, to get back around to where we're at now, uh, we're movement-based. We were back from the pitch. And when it comes to the weight room, preseason, it's a four-day-a-week lift. In season, it's a three-day-a-week lift. And the reality is, Louis Simmons has nailed, you know, I think what a lot of us agree, the way you need to approach a, a multi-dimensional approach to physical development. Rugby is a game that requires a little bit of everything. You know, preseason allows you to dip your toe into something a little bit longer to saturate the system and cause some super compensation. But throughout the year, we can't afford to fatigue anything too much or stay away from any one quality too long. So ultimately, we have a day where we chase strength. We have a day where we chase power. And if you're not playing on the weekend, you get to hit up a bit more volume to make sure that anatomical adaptation is staying on point. It's an 11-month season. So for us, it has to be about sustainability. Pivot a little bit, because it wasn't until um, McQuilkin and I were in Ireland that we heard of hurling. Yes. Have you Fastest been to a hurling? Yeah, yeah, have you been to a hurling match? I have. I have. Explain to explain to our U.S. listeners the sport. It's got clubs. Ooh, okay, here we go. So imagine a, uh, a stick that literally has a head on it that looks to be approximating the size of the head of a lacrosse stick but it's just flat. It almost looks like a weapon. Whole thing is made out of wood and you have to throw up a ball that looks like a version of a, of, of a baseball and you have to hit it with this wood stick at speed while you're sprinting while someone else is trying to hit your stick with theirs. But the reality is they're actually gunning for your arm. And so within this, they have what looks like uh, soccer nets on either side with goal posts on top of them. There is a goalie. And you get a certain amount of points for putting it over the goal and a certain amount of points for putting it in. And they're, they're playing on a, on a field, a pitch, that is bigger than the conventional soccer. So if you think of a, a field hockey meets lacrosse meets soccer and times the physical demand of the running by 10, and you have something akin to hurling. And talk us about the protective gear of the players. Well, th their hands are absolutely mangled. So, you know, for, for them to be able to hit the ball at the speed that they do, uh, they're not wearing much. They're not wearing any body gear or hand gear. 
They do now wear helmets, but kind of like ice hockey, how ice hockey had to get real bad and faces had to get even worse before they actually introduced some mandates around helmets. It was similar in hurling. They've only since, I, I, don't quote me on the exact timeline, but in, in recent history brought in the actual caged uh, helmets that they now wear. But the rest of the body is, is open for the damage that these hurlies, as they call them, can inflict. And if you're ever in Ireland, go to a sports shop and pick one of these up and you'll be amazed because they are absolutely trying to take body parts off with them. Is, uh, is there some form of like, um, I guess, a cross, uh, like a cross model where, hey, you know what, like we found that certain sports develop athletes better at a younger age uh, within like, you know, uh, the hierarchy, I guess, you have hurling, Gaelic football and rugby and mm-hmm. soccer, like, um, you know, in like a multi-sport approach. Well, I mean, if, yeah. if you look at the majority of, of uh, NFL players, usually had some other sport that they were pretty good at that developed a skill set that allowed them. I mean, you know, for me, it was, you know, fighting. I mean, Tony Gonzalez basketball. I mean, every one of the guys that I knew that was pretty talented had developed their skill set in another sporting arena and then ended up in football because, you know, I mean, there's a lot more call for a six foot four tight end than there is for a power four, uh, forward in the yeah. NBA. So I just yeah. wonder, like, all of these are, are you know, fast paced, big, uh, you know, big space. Like you said, like a big pitch, very violent, like, uh, you know, take a lot of, you know, I mean, if you were to drop the average, you know, American football player into a, you know, hurling event, I mean, fucking stand there and just get his head knocked off. So I just wonder if, if like, if you're looking at like the athletic development model, if you found that, hey, you know what, the kids that played soccer pretty early on tend to develop a little bit better in certain places and, you know, just within that cross model. Yeah, you know, it's, it was a big conversation when I was still at Exos and it's still a massive conversation now, you know, I think the evidence is one, our intuition suggests that playing multiple sports is a benefit. You know, when it comes to skill development, you're going to get more skill diversity if you play multiple sports, if full stop. So when you go into to sports like hurling or Gaelic football or rugby or American football that do require infinite combinations of movement to get around someone or stop someone from getting around you, ultimately intuition would suggest, and now evidence supports that playing multiple sports uh, helps. You know, within our environment, we absolutely try to promote when it comes to early skill development that you are playing a diversity of sports in primary and secondary school. You know, I think some really good examples in, in Premier League soccer, actually, a good friend of mine, Des Ryan, oversees the academy for Arsenal. He'd be a great person if you've ever had him on to have him on the podcast. And what Des, what Des Ryan does is you know, their academy starts at nine and not nine in the morning, but nine years old. And when we, when we look at that, that is really freaking young. And some might say, well, isn't that stopping them from being able to develop that skill diversity? But it goes back to what we said earlier. When you play games like rugby and soccer, the intuition for the game, the ability to read the game, it requires years upon years upon years of just seeing it and experience it to develop that cognitive skill set, say what you will about the physical side. So what these uh, clubs do a good job, at least the best ones that I look up to, they bring in other sports. So they'll actually have their football, their soccer coaches bringing in other versions of team sports. They'll bring in and do a bit of gymnastics or grappling to make sure that this skill diversity is available. And I won't claim to be an expert in Premier League soccer structures, but I would imagine that on those younger ages, they do promote or support other sports. And if they don't, they're at least facilitating it in-house. Now, I remember I was doing a mentorship 
in, in Germany at one of their Premier League soccer clubs. And again, I was watching like the under 12s outside and they were playing some version of field hockey. So there was a part of the day that it was actually dedicated to playing another sport. And we have our own examples. A guy right now on the 31-man squad, uh, Jordan Lommer, you know, he played field hockey, which is very different from rugby. But he credits it for his ability to stay low, his agility and his quick feet in small spaces because he had to be that quick plus use an odd-shaped stick and a ball on a sandy pitch and move it around. And he was quite good at that. So ultimately, I think if you talk to enough athletes, the ones that have that skill diversity tend to have something a little bit more when it comes to movement skill and I would say movement intuition than those that didn't. I want to get into some of the stuff that I've seen through your NSCA talks and writing, especially this idea of, of periodizing instruction. So you have the opportunity to work with all these different age groups. So do you direct your coaches different best practices, terms, approaches with those age groups? And then what is your plan for periodizing instruction? So let's, let's step back just a little bit, and then we'll try to answer that question. So um, periodization is probably, it's, it's a fair word to apply to it, but probably more principle-based instruction would be the, the P that I would prefer to apply to this. Um, so if, if we step back, we communicate with our athletes all the time, okay? We communicate with them on our way to the pitch. We have something we say at the beginning. We have something we say uh, during the actual session, whether it's in the weight room or on the field. We have something we say at the end, and then we have all the meetings and the time we spend in between. So, you know, for me, for the longest time, I've been studying how coaches communicate and use language. But the reality is you could have a dissertation, multiple dissertations on each of those respective areas. You could have a dissertation on just how to give a freaking team talk at halftime. So for me, the area of language that I've become most fascinated with, selfishly, because it's the, it's, it's the one that was most important for my athlete's development, was specifically the language we use right before they move. Okay, so in answering this question, I think that's important to understand that the kind of language I look at is what I like to call their, their cues, their instruction. But to put it even simpler, it's the last idea you put in the athlete's head before they move. So I am fascinated, if, if not um, compelled in an obsessive way to understand how do we optimize the ideas we put in our athlete's head right before they move. So. Another way to think about that is not only am I interested in coaching language, but probably more importantly, I'm interested in athletes thinking. I'm interested in the things that we should think about to optimize the way we move. And ultimately, if you think about what a coach's responsibility, that dominates what we do. Every single thing that we say to an individual in some way is meant to influence and support the way they think about and perform these movements within the context of their given sport. So I think it's pretty important. Yet, when I started studying this stuff back in, I don't know, 2006, 2007, I couldn't find any material on it. You know, you, you go on Google and put in cueing and instruction, you might pull up a couple old school motor learning papers from the 80s, but it wasn't like there were, were books on this. It wasn't like it was front and center but you go on and look up hypertrophy or how to develop strength and power. And the information was available uh, in unlimited fashion and almost unlimited opinions on it. So ultimately for me, I'm like, wow, there's this thing that we do all the time, yet there is literally no 
generally accessible information for the lay coach like myself. I was aware that maybe I was using the wrong terminology. So at the end of the day, no one had gone to the extent of translating this to the general coach. So I'm like, let me start to dig in. And inevitably, you had to dig in and dust off the old textbooks. So it was getting into to the Richard McGill motor learning books and the Richard Smith uh, motor learning books and, and the like. A lot of us would have had those, at least for one of our courses in college. But inevitably, I came into contact with this gal named Gabrielle Wolf, who was doing some really interesting stuff on what she called attentional focus. And as I come to learn, attentional focus is just a fancy way to say what people think about while they move. So, okay, so attentional focus equals what we think about while we move. But for me, I didn't know attentional focus was a thing. But once I found that term, attentional focus, ah, now all of a sudden Google Scholar opened its doors to me and I was able to find literature that actually started to tell me something about coaching language and athlete thinking. And as I started to dig into her material and, and other authors, uh, notably a guy named Jared Porter, what I found is, okay, okay, what they're doing here is they're kind of categorizing the language we use. And they're categorizing it broadly uh, into two things, internal cues and external cues. Okay, so what's an internal cue? It's any cue that relates to body movement. So if you were to tell someone to extend their hip, or squeeze their glute, or drive off their big toe, or keep their chest up, or push the butt back. Infinite examples could take their place. Those are all internal cues that talk about the process of movement. But okay, they're inside the body, got it, internal cues. Uh, external cues are about the outcome you are trying to achieve. Okay, I want you to jump high. So think of a vertex. You pull all the tabs away. You say, try to touch that tab. That's an outcome focus. Or I want you to push the bar to the ceiling. That's an outcome focus. Or I want you to drive through the center of that person on the tackle, hit them as hard as you can so you bury them into the floor. Outcome focus. Um, equally, though, we might give a cue that relates to one's interaction with the environment to achieve that goal. So I want you to push the ground away to jump as high as you can. Um, I want you to explode off the front of your cleat or explode off the front of your boot, as they say in Ireland, as you're making that tackle, dig in and drive through. Um, I want you to drive yourself down into the bench as you're trying to get that bar off you, so on and so forth. So I said, okay, you have this language basically talks about the internal movement process. And then you have this language that talks about the outcome or the interaction with the environment. So some of this stuff is inside the perimeter of the body. Some stuff is outside the perimeter of the body. Fantastic. So as I first started to read this, my thought process was like, okay, this is going to tell me when I should use internal cues, and this is going to tell me when I should use external cues. And, and that was my thought process when I first read these articles. And as I started to dig in, I'm like, wow, these articles are pretty one-sided. And I'm like, oh, that's 10, 20, 30, wow, they're all saying the exact same freaking thing. And as I started to interrogate my own experience, I'm like, yeah, I actually think my own experience backs up what they're saying here. And even though these are lab-based studies, I'm working with real people every single day trying to achieve real results. And ultimately, what these articles, I, I think now, the last time I checked my EndNote, which has all the references in it, something like 170 articles easily on the topic of internal cueing versus external cueing, you're not going to find an article that can back up or support the use of internal cueing when it comes to promoting healthy, effective movement. 
ultimately the punchline is the last idea we put in an athlete or any individual's head before they move should come in the form of an external cue, which means you're cueing them to focus on the interaction with the environment or the outcome they're trying to achieve. Now, a lot of people take issue with this. They're like, well, hold on, hold on. I have to tell, I have to help them develop body awareness. They need to know where their hip, their knee, their ankle are at all times in space when they're performing that single leg squat or that jump. And the reality is we've created as an industry this false truth in that we have come to assume that because we have a detailed knowledge of how the body works from a biomechanical and a kinesiological perspective, that that's exactly the same way the athlete needs to understand their body to move accordingly. And we mapped our knowledge of what the movement is and falsely labeled it as the same knowledge to know how to perform the movement. But the reality is knowing what a movement is and knowing how to perform a movement are not the same freaking thing. Our athletes don't rock up to training or to a match on a Saturday to take a written exam on how to perform a back squat. No, they have to actually perform the squat or in the sport, perform the specific skills that they're trying to perform. Now, I'm a big fan of still educating athletes, and, and we still need to be able to talk people through how a movement should be performed. We have inquisitive athletes. We have athletes that sometimes don't want to just be told to jump high. They're like, well, how do you want me to do that? And so ultimately, what I've done is in my book that I'm writing that's coming out in, in March 2020, is I've said, listen, even though we want the last idea you put in their head to be an external cue, it doesn't have to be the only thing you ever say to them. So I talk about this idea of the DDCDD. So that's you describe it, you demonstrate it, you cue it, they do it, and then you debrief it. So when I'm describing a movement, I truly believe this. You can talk about biomechanics. You can say, listen, we're going to squat now. I need your hips back. I need your knees aligned over your toes, feet shoulder width apart, blah, 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 blah. But inevitably, we all know that when you give that long scripted description, you can't just leave them with that, okay? That's like asking them to memorize a poem and go through that in their mind while they're performing the movement. It's not going to work. They're going to drop it all. So ultimately, what do we naturally do? After we describe and demonstrate it, we give them a cue. It's a summary of all the stuff I just told you. This should be the mental headlight to get you through the darkness of this new movement you're learning. Ultimately, they perform it. And then when you debrief it again, you might bring up some of those details. Hey, you shifted a little bit here, or your knee went a little bit there. So to fix that, I want you to imagine your knees are headlights. Keep those headlights pointed forward. So it's not that we can't use this descriptive what-based language. We can. We just want to evict it from the last idea we put in the athlete's head before they move. And ultimately, if we keep that in the form of an external cue or an analogy, which is a short comparison between something they're familiar with and something they're not, i.e. explode off the line in a sprint like a jet taking off, if they know what a jet is, they can map that onto the sprint they're learning for the first time. If we reserve that cue for external cues and analogies, we are going to set them up far better, both in the short term, but more importantly in the long term, because we know that external cueing and analogy helps protect against choking and competition, supports acute shifts in performance from a movement quality and a biomechanical perspective, but also results in better long-term learning, which means you don't have to keep reminding them. The cue works to the point that they actually download the change and they don't need to continuously hear the cue again and again and again to perform that movement. 
ultimately we've all dealt with that thing where the person comes in a Monday, we QQQQQ, they get better, they come back on a Thursday, and it's like men in black have gone into their house, erase their memory, and start again. You know, ultimately we have to be able to bring our language to, to the level where they can own the change. If your athlete requires your presence to make a change, I feel comfortable in saying you probably have failed them and you need to look at a way to shift that. I have found in my own coaching practice, the evolution of external cueing and analogies has been a game changer, not just in understanding, but material performance. Yeah, we talked with uh, Rachel Larson, who's local, been doing some research on that. And it's that delineation between teaching the movement and coaching the movement, right? And then also understanding the athlete's life cycle, how how much exposure have they had to a movement and a big fan too, of the concept of like sometimes helping is hurting, right? Yep. If they're always relying on your eyes and your words to, to execute, it's no bueno. Can't be doing that. Shut up. We talk talk (laughs) about this idea of silent sets. No, you're right. You could call them shut up sets or silent sets. And that is if you never go radio silent, how are you going to know whether or not that thing you said to them a few minutes ago or a few days ago actually made its way into the body? You know, I always use the mental picture. I'm like, you need to go National Geographic style. You should only be satisfied that if you were to, to walk into their backyard and see them playing with their kids squatting down, that they're performing those movements as you've actually coached them. Because if they can't own the change that you're trying to facilitate, then have you really facilitated? It goes back to the old quote, you have not taught until they have learned. And learning requires them to own it in the absence of you. And for me, that is one of the most powerful ideas that I ever came into contact with. And luckily, I came into contact with it early in my career. Yeah, when we work with our coaches, we express the they have to set their athletes free. So, for example, if we're doing two reps in that, maybe set them up, lead them through one, but then the second one... Well, don't you also think coaches get into this machine gun uh, queuing where they just like, I know all these cues and I just shoot the machine gun. Unlimited ammo. Uh, (laughs) I just rather almost watch somebody. I mean, I always thought like if, uh, is it more valuable for you to tell me or show me? So like the idea of like pulling out an iPhone and not even coaching them, just showing them and being like, hey, your knee's caving in. This is what it felt like. And then being able to show them like a real time, say, hey, that's what it felt. I know for me personally, um, I was having a hell of a time with like getting the bar positioned on my back. And even though it felt natural, it wasn't until I saw it in a mirror and like we set up like a mirror and I looked where I was like, holy shit, that looks awful. And then you're having to get it into a position where you're like, Hey, this looks normal, but this feels awful. And then realizing that we get stuck in these movement patterns or we just get stuck in things. And sometimes, uh, you know, it requires more than just the machine gun approach, which I think coaches just love to do at the end of the day, like, you know, little cues like move as fast as you can <laughs> can be extremely helpful. 100%. And the, it's a coaching trap, honestly. Um, just for example, high school basketball athlete, right? They are, they've been playing ball their entire life, soccer, just having fun. And then the minute that they touch a barbell for the first time, like coaches get into us, like, I can't believe they can't do this, or I can't believe they squat. We had a, a, a dude reach out to, I think it was you and I, Luke. Uh, via Facebook of he couldn't believe because he was a football coach leading some training sessions that the best player on his team couldn't execute a squat. You know what I'm talking about? But 
right? They, they are free to express, read, react on the defense, and I guess think and express their athleticism externally. But the moment you're forcing them into this box, that's when they can't yeah, have this mind but you're, connection. Yeah, but you're making the assumption that uh, lifting weights is athleticism. Like, um, no, I, I'm I mean, saying it is a trap. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, I think, like, and we, we've seen this for years. Oh, I can't believe these athletes. Well, have they ever done this? I mean, like, I mean, uh, I would say opportunity is by far the best determining factor for athleticism that I've ever found. I mean, it's very rare that somebody's never given the opportunity to do anything and they just, like, naturally gravitate towards it. I mean, if you give somebody the opportunity, most people are awful. But if the more and more you go in the weight room, I mean, I found the more, the more times I had the opportunity to lift, the better I got. Shocker. You know? See what, what we're finding. What we're finding now, and I think it's it's interesting. It's nuanced, but it's important in kind of the, you know, motor learning is finally making its way to the table. You know, people talk about skill acquisition, or you know, pedagogy, or whatever word you want to throw at it. And what we're finding is we're seeing a lot of individuals talk about hey, how do we create the environment for the learning to happen? How do we create these opportunities for learning? How do we say less to allow them to do more? And I think that's phenomenal. But at the same time, we're going to run the risk of, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And this is a bit of a prediction in that if we start to identify that, wow, we're using a lot of this overly constraining language. We're saying way too much. We're causing paralysis by analysis. The logical solution is we need to talk less. We need to allow them to do more. And it needs to be more focused on how do we just change the environment, putting a minivan here, a cone there, changing the rule there just to allow them to sort it out. But we all know that while a, a strong learning environment can adjust movement, you know, a minivan being a great example of that, it only is going to work for so long. And not everyone inevitably just creates infinite skill just by playing the sport. Otherwise, all we'd have to do is put a ball out there and say, off you go. We know that they're going to get better to a degree, but then they're going to run up against this limitation. And the limitation is they're not focusing on the right things. They're not focusing on the defender in the right way. They're not seeing the space. They're not even aware that they need to be knowing that there's space over there. So ultimately, what I'm trying to do is find an equitable solution that says, hold on. It's not about you know, environment only or coaching only. The reality is we need both. You're always getting information from the environment, right? Our senses are constantly giving us information that we use to make the next best moment. At the same time, we're only so good at navigating what that information means. So we also need top-down. That's your cues, instruction. That's the next idea you put in their head. What I'm trying to do is help coaches realize that for too long, you confused your biomechanics manual for a textbook on communication. It was a failure of omission. We forgot to tell you that these were not the words you're meant to put in their freaking head. You don't learn to drive your car by taking a course on the mechanics of the engine. Yet, by way of analogy, that's how a lot of us coach. We're teaching you to move your body by telling you how your body moves. And ultimately, that's really good. And for someone who's interested in the engine of their car, they're going to go learn about that so they can be a mechanic. And we have athletes like that. But a lot of them just want to know how to do it, not necessarily what sits behind that. And this is where back to the question text on periodization, it's less about periodization, it's more about individualization. And how am I actually going to bring language that fits you and your circumstances? So when I'm working with a little kid, imagine I'm working with an eight-year-old, and I tell an eight-year-old to push the ground away. The eight-year-old will not know what I mean, because think about it, push the ground away. 
you're, you can't literally push the ground away. It's physically impossible. So to an eight-year-old, that is a very abstract idea. So that would be a horrible cue for them. I also, actually pushing would, for an eight-year-old would be with their hands. I mean, I, I've got into this because I have, I have uh, yep. twin girls that are seven and like I'll give them some cues or analogies or things and they'll be like, well, how can I push it? Uh, I, you know, are my hands supposed to be on the ground? And you're like, bingo, man, I yep. didn't even think about that one. It just it uh, it's pretty interesting when you hear people coach. I mean, the the problem is, is that we coach from our perspective. Like, hey, this is something that would either interest me or this would drive exactly. me and uh, never realizing that it doesn't fit within. You know, that's like me, uh, you know, making some analogy to these kids who weren't alive when the analogy was funny. I mean, we do it all the time with movie quotes and they've never seen the movie, you know, so you run in that same thing. And then it's like, how have you never seen this movie? You know, in turn, that was, that was me. That was me moving to Ireland. You know, when I, when I rocked up here, imagine that, you know, the boot that when I, when I hear the word boot, I think that I'm going to go trekking in the forest. No, for them, the boot is what they wear when they play football, which is also known as rugby, but it's also the trunk of your car is called the boot. And if you want to go down to the local pub, it's not a bar, it's a pub, right? You know, you don't order fries, you order chips, you don't order chips, you, you order crisps. And if you want to get some chicken strips, they're actually known as goujons. So the reality is I was finding all of my analogies were literally just being deflated on impact because I was so calibrated to you know, division one athletes in their fourth year going into the NFL who came to Phoenix, Arizona to prepare for the NFL combine. It's like my microcosm of colloquial, you know, vernacular and language was heavily focused on one group. And luckily, again, the strategies I've used and developed over the years allowed me to quickly adjust. And for me to be able to have to put myself through that own language upgrading was huge validation that what I'm trying to share with the world could add some value because ultimately it is a matter of saying, you know what, while that biomechanical textbook is not meant to be uh, a manual on how to communicate, well, here's the one that is. And, and ultimately that's the book that I'm writing is meant to be that replacement, or at least that starting point and say, here's a conversation around how to have better conversations. Yeah, I've, I've felt exact exactly that experience as we work more and more with tactical community and some special forces guys in the old school referencing football or basketball and they weren't necessarily a few of them not high school athletes yes so having the communication with them and learning more and more about their specific scenarios that they face day to day to then make the connections to the movements and our expectations of execution yeah so Let's go back to, uh, to what was said earlier on, you know, this idea of the push. So in, in my book, one of the areas I start to get into is how language and movement actually interact in the brain. And one thing that we now know is verbs, right? So push, punch, uh, drive, snap, explode. When you take these verbs and you have people listen to them, uh, read them, or even from the visualization perspective, watch those verbs in action. So people actually kicking, pushing, punching. We know that the part of the brain, that that word, that literal word is processed to allow you to understand what the heck it means, is the same part of the brain responsible for bringing that movement to life. So when we hear the word push, it is prioritized in the portions of the brain connected with the upper body, specifically involved in performing that movement that we associate with the word push. Equally, the word punch, 
upper body. The word kick, lower body. So this band in the middle of our brain that we call our primary motor cortex literally doubles as the region that we process action language because it's the shared real estate responsible for that action itself, which makes a whole lot of sense. The brain is organized efficiently in that manner. So why does that matter? It matters because if we can use language that is specific to the individual's understanding of it, it is going to allow us to get significantly closer to the movement that language is trying to promote. So if I just tell you to extend your hip, right, versus push the ground away, extending the hip is literally going to tell the brain just to focus on the hip itself. But if I'm sprinting, if I'm jumping, if I'm squatting, it's not the, the hip is not the only character in that play. But that's what you're telling the brain to treat the movement like. So ultimately, verbs allow us to trigger complex movement at the same time allowing the biomechanics to literally be hidden inside the words that you use. And analogies allow us to do the exact same thing. But the key with an analogy is they have to be familiar with it. We can only apply language to movement that we're familiar with. And thus, again, that's what I try to focus on in the book is how to give people simple tools to approach modifying and developing language that will fit the needs of the individual. It's good shit. And violated daily. And no, I, uh, <laughs> I think um, strength centers around the world. It's funny. Uh, Luca opened this podcast with, you know, hey, like, uh, what was it that wanted to drive you to go someplace new, someplace foreign, outside of it? You know, basically abandon America and you know, show that you're just you know <laughs> fleeing the country. Uh, you know, for, Lucky. yeah, for one reason, Selfish. but, uh, actually right sitting, sitting right here time. for the last hour and 17 minutes, it, it became very clear that to actually write this book and to be able to really understand queuing and what you're trying to do, you almost had to leave the U S where, uh, the information that you become accustomed to and the coaching and the circles, uh, all becomes very parasitic in a way where, you know, everybody's just kind of parasiting off of the everybody else. And, you know, the monkey see monkey do is so prevalent and strength conditioning. I mean, uh, like you can trace everybody's program back to a few different things. And you, you know, you, you mentioned West side. I mean, the amount of people that do, I mean, some form of max effort and then do some form of dynamic work. And you know, where that comes from, if you look at Fred Hatfield's compensatory acceleration, which I was always a big believer in and, you know, and then it's like, if it's med balls, it's, you know, Charlie Francis, regardless of who wants to claim they invented how to fucking do GPP work with med balls. And you get into all this stuff and it's just, comes from a few different adaptations in this, but the cueing and the coaching styles really because of American football and the, the state and what it is, uh, just are very accepted. So then to be able to transplant yourself, drop yourself into a completely different sport into a different country, and then one to be able to find uh, a language of both cueing and coaching that's universally transferable and how to understand it. Like the analogy you could give me as an American football player and say, hey, if you were working with me, hey, I want you to put your head through that guy and drive through him. You know, I want you to crack his helmet, you know, your two screws on the front of your head. That, uh, that reference isn't going to work with Gaelic football or, you know, uh, rugby or whatnot. And then the same cues that those guys are going to use like hey I want you you know good flat back in this situation is a terrible position in football you know the only guy that has a flat back would probably be down on the goal line where that's a you know yeah and you're probably going to go facing the ground so like the understanding of like uh and really why I kind of branched on and what really the I guess you could say the kernel and really the nugget for power athlete is this idea of a universal athletic 
model and that there's this blueprint for athleticism that I observed in all sports. And what I found is that if we could train within that blueprint, it was had the greatest application to sport opposed from people that didn't. So if I, you know, and it was structural stuff like, hey, if my knees were over my insteps and my toes were straight ahead, I was dramatically stronger than people whose knees, you know, were outside of their toes and uh, were duck footed. I mean, so just a lot of these things came down from observation in terms of the best way I knew, which was basically applying, driving, uh, receiving, giving force, you know, force on force. And it's amazing what happens when you took two big dudes and they smash into each other, uh, all things being equal with size and strength, the one that is anatomically set up or puts himself into the best position understanding athleticism will be the most successful so as i'm sitting here listening i'm like man to be able to take that methodology and a set of cues to really prove that one i'm worth my salt and i know what the fuck i'm doing i should be able to go anywhere and drop this in and be able to apply this information in a meaningful way to people that don't understand the nuance of what i'm saying yeah So, um, yeah, I mean, like Luke's opening question, as I sat here, I mean, what was it for really the last 80 minutes? And I'm just like, fuck, man, this is uh, it's one, it's uh, extremely brave and very insightful, but also very intelligent in terms of a faster way to prove efficacy and ramp up a program uh, is being like, okay, hey, we understand it here. Let me drop it over here and see how it applies to these people that will have no fucking foundation. And and a lot of times, and you know this, man, I mean, you'll probably tell me better than, than uh, anybody, but having traveled around the world and worked with athletes, there is a very, very distinct culture in terms of the gym weightlifting culture that exists in America from high school football. I mean, here in Texas, especially as we're sitting here, uh, like – ask anybody here that's actually been to a gym or a training center outside the United States in Europe and you show up and it's like something out of a fucking gym shark ad, you know, people are in there and it's like, we have a joke. I had a football coach that used to refer to something he called titty ball jack off. And I never knew what the fuck it was, but it was referencing things that look like fuckery, like just people screwing around. And yeah. so whenever I walked into these places, I'm seeing like just people just doing nonsense that they think is athletic training. And, um, it's uh, it just makes me believe that like and, and I'll take it a step back that really strength conditioning started from the NFL and American football. You can look at the you know, original people from, you know, the Bill Stars and, you know, Alver Meals and all these guys really stem from this performance of American football. And then it's kind of branched out. But there's still that uh, that culture here in the U.S. that I don't necessarily know is if has infected the world as today, but it will eventually. So I think it's pretty fascinating to come in and be able to see if, hey, if we can bring this kind of strength conditioning because um, it, what it feels like the rest of the world is very skill oriented, whereas I think the United States has gotten into this idea that like there's a way to kind of hardline this stuff through strength conditioning. And we see it, you know, there's performance centers for kids and sports specific this and sports specific this, where in the world, the whole sports specific mentality is play your fucking sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just it's. um it's commendable and it's cool. And, uh, as I was sitting here, it, it fucking brain bombed me where I was like, damn dude, this is, uh, this is cool shit, man. I, um, I definitely am. Uh, and I, I don't know if that was what the intention was, but sitting here on the other side, having this conversation, it was very clear. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, it, it's funny for me moving to Ireland. I, I wanted it to challenge every, every element of who I was and what I did. And, and while I, I didn't explicitly think about its ability to evolve an idea 
that I had spent a lot of time thinking about. I, I think you've captured it very eloquently there that ultimately I think the book that I'm able to share and the ideas I'm able to share with the world are significantly more refined and significantly more, uh, let's say, shaped from the standpoint of having had this experience and had I stayed in the microcosm of where I was, I don't think the book would be nearly where it's at. So no, I think you've, you've captured it nicely. And ultimately, that's, that's what language is. It, it's a vehicle for you to translate your ideas into those of other individuals. And albeit I moved to Ireland and I had to create quite a profound change in the way I communicated, every single individual you come up against is that opportunity to adapt to what they need to get better. And that's what I'm hoping to bring to the world. Is there, uh, is there any camaraderie or is there any joking with the Irish towards the Americans? I always wonder if oh. like, uh, because the Irish are funny. Uh, they have a, a very funny sense of humor. So I just wonder. Uh, Thick skin. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just uh, like a decent amount of ball breaking. So I just wonder yeah. how, uh, how they've the taken banter. to you. Banter is the word they prefer to uh. use. Uh, they love it. It is. It, it, it's not just reserved for sports. It, it's going to be walk, walking down the hallway, coworkers, getting your hair cut. Hey, you're going to be getting banter everywhere you look. And if you can't hack it, you're not going to last very long in this country. Uh, they have plenty of opinions uh, about Americans. Credit to them. They usually ask me my opinion and use that as the gateway to, to get in theirs. <laughs> you know, but, but ultimately, you know what I like is it is about the conversation. There isn't a whole lot of agendas. If they have an opinion, they go ahead and just put it out there. It's not like they're hiding that opinion behind some wall of, of emotion or sarcasm. They're actually pretty straight to the point. And I find that more or less uh, with Europeans. And that if someone engages you with a conversation, there tends to not be an agenda. You know, not always, but there tends to not be an agenda. And they just want to have a chat with you. You know, the same thing goes when you look at like waiters and, and waitresses. They don't get tips. So if they're interacting with you, it's because they want to. They're not doing it just to get an extra couple, you know, extra five bucks on, on, on the tip, if you would, at the end. So I find in that regard, there's a level of authenticity and sometimes a brutal honesty that can be sobering for an American who's not used to it. You know, I've realized us as Americans, we like to sugarcoat things. We like to tiptoe around. We like to hide our real opinions and funny sarcasm and everything is fucking fantastic, amazing, phenomenal. Over here, you get a tempered down approach, but the reality is it's very authentic. And you know when someone does put their hand on your shoulder and say, you did a fucking great job, it, it means a little bit more, I find. How about uh, your family, uprooting them and getting them out there, how they liking it? I'll put it this way. When I called my wife and said I'd been offered the position, I've never heard her cry so loud. Enjoy, enjoy, uh, not, not, not in sadness, because for you know when I met her in high school, you know, I, I knew I had a, uh, an, amazing, an amazing individual, but someone who had a wild soul. And then what I mean by that is she wanted to see the world. She wanted to conquer the world. And I, I have to be honest, when I got that job, as happy as I was you know, for myself and my kids and the experience, I was so happy for her because I knew that she was getting to achieve a goal that was as important to her as, as it was to me. And so for me, that's been amazing. And since moving here, you know, the experiences that has afforded her and my family have been just amazing. You have two kids, four and eight. Absolutely love it. You know, they don't, my son doesn't know the difference. You know, for him, you know, he say, where are you from? He's like, Ireland, America. You know, he, he feels like he's from both. But the reality is he spent most of his life in Ireland. And it's, it's a great place to, to, to raise your kids. It is remarkably safe. People truly care. With 4.6 million, there's a small community feel everywhere, literally everywhere you go. They love children and they're so good to them. So we're blessed to be here and have a gateway to see all of Europe has just been amazing. So I feel 
very privileged. What trips me out, and I, I think sometimes people forget, is how small Europe is. I mean, I think, like, what was it, like, the um, uh, the drive from Austin to El Paso will basically get you from, like, Florence to, like, Oslo. I mean, it's, like, yeah. it's, uh, it, like, it, it's just, it, it's kind of interesting. And what, what blows my mind, especially if you travel through Europe, I mean, you go through these, like, little, you know, the countries, and you're kind of speeding through them, and the language is different, the cultures are different. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you drive through states here in America, and, like, you kind of know where you're at, but for the most part, you know, you can walk in everywhere, you know, the, I mean, obviously, if you go down south, it's a little bit different, but uh, just, yeah, I mean, and, and then the ability to travel and see some things that you'll probably never get to see again. It, it, it brings it brings perspective that the experiment that is the United States is amazing that we're trying to get 330 million people to agree on the exact same way to, to, to live a life, so to speak, insofar as laws and politics are concerned. And, and you see then, as you just said, you can drive a couple hours and all of a sudden things culturally, politically, laws can be very different. And ultimately, we, we, when I, it's given me the perspective to say, wow, I understand why it can be so difficult with what we're trying to do in the United States from a, from a, a broad political perspective, irregardless of anyone's opinion. It is just a very difficult thing trying to get this many people to agree. It's that simple. And Europe just gives you a little bit more salience on that fact, considering how small everything is. For those of you who have nothing to do at your office jobs, or maybe you have very important things to do, there's a website called thetruesize.com. <laughs> and it's like, it's because we take a globe and we flatten it out into like yeah. a one, uh, one plane. Oh, like, yeah. so like Earth. It, uh, it's like Africa is huge, but if you see it on a globe, it's like kind yeah. of yeah, proportional. So, so what it does is it scales countries and overlays them visually, and you can start to get a feel for like, okay, how big is Germany? And then you realize it's the size of like fucking Sheboygan. You know, it's like... It's very interesting this how things scale out was from I, a globe to was I right in the uh in the Texas deal where it's like El Paso to Austin is like Florence to to Oslo. Like it's the it, I could do some let me let me, let me clear well, this map here. Austin to El Paso is five hundred and seventy miles. Yeah. It tried it showed me kilometers and I got lost. <laughs> <sighs> okay, I'm gonna try to Yeah, get let's see how this happens. Texas. One? You know, I always wondered if um, if America took like the the EU approach and every state broke into its own little country, yeah. how interesting that would be. I mean, I know Texas would do it tomorrow. They'd be like, they uh, <laughs> Texas views themselves they're as still as, trying to do it, aren't they? Oh my! <laughs> yeah. I, I, they're like every year, like let's secede from the union. We'll be our own country. Well, move the whole gold storage from Fort Knox, like it's Die Hard Three, and brought it back home. I'm just well, saying. It, but, but what this comes down to is if, if you go back and you know read books like uh, The Story of the Human Body and you get into kind of evolution of, of culture and community, we are, by the very nature, we, we come from very small community groups that were designed to kind of work in these small communities of 30 to 40 close individuals, which would have been the average size of a tribe that in the surrounding regions might have tapped out at 100 and 120 individuals. And now we're operating in businesses, right, in one building that are, are that at a ridiculous multiple, right? So it's, it's challenging, I think, literally who we are from, from a biological perspective to have to engage with this many individuals. And it's just quite difficult, naturally, to get that level of, of alignment. And add in social media, and now you have the opportunity to connect and try to compare yourself to billions of people. And that just psychologically speaking is a very difficult proposition for anybody. 
we were on, uh, uh, Rob Wolf tagged me in something on social media and, uh, he was posting this deal. They were talking about like, uh, different, um, alternative sources for like, you know, vegan leather and this, and it's just basically recycled plastic. And so he tagged me and this lady got on there and was like, you know, the whole world's coming to an end. Nobody should have children. This, you know, this world is broken and like this whole doom and gloom thing. And I've been watching, Uh, a show on Netflix with my kids, which was this documentary on like how Arrow, the dinosaur flash <laughs> uh, flashes on Sundays. So we were watching Sunday night. We watched this thing about how the dinosaurs died. And so 65 million years ago, a asteroid roughly six, seven miles wide, traveling 40,000 miles an hour hits the earth. And in a split second, 75% of all the species on earth die. And it's the equivalent of like billions of like megaton atomic bombs that dropped on Hiroshima go off at once. There's a nuclear winter that lasts for like, I mean, like I forgot what they said. It was something astronomical, like 180 million years. Um, the earth survived. We're here. Still here, bitches. Right? Like, Bring uh, it, uh, right? So, so I was laughing that like this lady is like this, this planet is ruined. We need to go to a new one. And I'm like... A fucking asteroid hit the earth and killed everything, and there was a nuclear winter, and you know what? Life still survived. Fish lit. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like... Uh, so in the grand scheme of things, things... Well, and my comment to her now, is... Are is we turn humans off, probably fucked? Turn maybe. off your fucking TV. Stop scrolling on social media. Walk outside. Meet your neighbors. And go fucking enjoy your life. Because if you look on social media and like the news and everything, you would think that people are at each other's throats. But like, that's not how I see it. So I, I agree. The question is... The question is... How do we get the rest of the world? How do you get your neighbors? How do you get your kids to start doing that? And that's raising two children. That's the big question that I'm asking myself. Is, Brute force. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lock the doors. Change the keys every month. No, you can't come in. Go, you go outside. Until five, you know? But that, that, is, that is, I think, the, the challenge for both parents in this generation is how, how, how can they separate their, their social, what is becoming, you know, virtual life from their real one and, and knowing that ultimately you live the latter and to live the latter, you have to live in the real world if you truly want to be happy, you know, and that's, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because the yeah. reality is there are too many great, there are too many great things. And by all measures, it is the best time in history ever to oh, live. I, I, and we want, we want people amen. to actually be able to live that life. But I do think there are some psychological barriers that we can't deny. Well, the, uh, so the problem is, is that if you're viewing it through social media, the TV or any other structure, you're actually going through somebody else's filter. 100%. Uh, and that filter is tinted based off of agendas and what people are hoping to do it. I mean, every, you know, it's, it's very rarely that anybody just puts something out there, you know, for the good of putting it out there. Everything has some form of agenda associated with it. And like my whole deal, and I, and I argue with my wife constantly on this thing, is like uh, if you if I were to just basically look at America and this social and this uh, based, you know, with social media, Twitter and all this other stuff, I would think that people were fighting in the streets and were at each other's throats. But we don't see that. We don't see it at yeah. school. We don't see it with our neighbors. We don't see it anywhere. So I just think it's it's uh, creating like a false sense of uh, I mean, a false perception of reality that I just don't think fucking exists. I, I agree. I agree. But as we all know. Visualization, right? I think about. Uh, performing a, a sports skill, I close my eyes and I create the most vivid image of me sprinting down the track. My brain is going to start to activate and operate like that is my reality. And ultimately, that's what social media is literally doing for so many individuals. It is creating this virtual reality. And when they step back into the real reality, they're not able to necessarily mentally disconnect because those pathways, so to speak, 
yeah, the scientific here are being stimulated so often, you know, and for me, that's, that's the opportunity that we need to start to, to, to get around because reality is it's not going to go away. So how do we make it operate in a, in a, in a charitable manner with the real world that they need to live in? Because ultimately it comes down to this, the more we, we socialize ourselves online, I believe we're looking for things that make us different from everybody. And the reality is I believe we need to get back to the narrative of common humanity. So as important as it is to get kids back on the street playing and feeling safe to do so, it's about spending as much time focusing on what connects us as much as we do in, in celebrating what makes us different. Boom. Which probably has much more overlap than the latter, right? I agree. It's good chat. Sweet, man. I like it when we get off the rails. Yeah. Let's wrap it. Best time to be alive, man. You got movies like Hobbs and Shaw. All generations prior to this Ad didn't Estrada. get to enjoy rock movies. Do you realize that? How did they live? You realize. How did they get across the Oregon Hob Trail? Hobbs and Shaw make yeah. the Fast and Furious movies look like documentaries, like historical documentaries. Yeah. No, I'm fine with that. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I, like I t even I took my kids to see it, and they were like, this isn't very believable. And I'm like, you're seven. <laughs> And what they didn't they, buy it. What was it? It was called the Westward Movement, right? When uh, people were colonizing the West uh, Coast. Manifest Destiny. Manifest, Manifest Destiny, right? Like the Westward Expanse. Ugh, no iPads. Ugh. Well, think about How this, man. It? This always blows my mind that people would load up a fucking wagon and just go west. With no, like Nothing. they weren't going to make it. Their offspring was going to make uh, it. But here's the crazy thing. There but was like, uh, like they didn't know what they were going to encounter. There was like, I mean. But uh, even uh, more crazy, people... Just jumped out of Ireland. I'm going to go get in a boat. I don't know where the hell we're going. So, yeah. But I can walk across America in the ocean. I don't know. Water's my biggest fear, Nick. So I'm. Oh, is I don't, man, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The uh, um, I was I, I forgot who it's I was telling. Um, my grandfather. The way so my uh, my grandfather was from England and my grandmother was from Ireland. And uh, my grandfather, uh, World War One, the Germans were bombing. So all the kids and everybody was living in the tunnels, like in the subway tunnels. And so they took all the kids, put them on boats and shipped them to Canada. And so he was like six or seven years old. And he and his brother got put on a boat and went to live in an orphanage in Canada. So left the parents, everybody and just shipped them off. And then that like they were like, OK, see you later. I mean, and these kids, that's what they did. And uh, I like listen to this today and like think like we're going to put all these kids on a boat and we're going to send them halfway around the world. I hope they're OK. They'll be fine. They'll mm -hmm. figure it the fuck out. What do they do to pass time? Beat, you just play jack each other up. Yeah. yeah. Fight. Wrestle. Kick the can. Mm -hmm. Figure shit out. Yeah. Well, this one derailed. I'd I love it. Not get Lyme disease. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's 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 super fascinating, man. And um, uh, I think just from my own perspective, um, so many people within the Exos and the Verstegen deal just end up becoming these like little Verstegenites, where they just parrot his stuff and like this and this, and it's killer to see you break out of it and go in your own direction and be like, hey, man, like my time is here is gone. Now I need to develop, and I uh, appreciate. It. I think it's awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in strength and conditioning. Yeah, and conditioning. We are dropping this during the World Cup, so... Ing. Well, ing. <laughs> Check ing. out Ireland, but still go Yeah, USA. best of luck, man. Best of luck. If people want to... Where, where do people tune in, you know, uh, if they want to check out what's going on? I'm simple, man. It's, it's Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, all at Nick Winkleman. Okay. Easy. Cool. Cool. And you're going to keep us up to date on how the boys are doing, right? Absolutely. At Irish Rugby. Follow there you go. Oh, we'll follow them.
Beautiful. We got Scotland. We got Scotland this weekend, so it all kicks off. Ooh, cool. Big no. time rivalry. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Hey, Nick. Before you go. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you up via email. What we need is a playlist, something that gets you going for your training and workouts, as well as a shipping address and shirt sizes. And then we got some shirts for your boys as well, man. If if you want to include yeah, their sizes. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So. Uh, by by that, you probably don't know that I'm a DJ then. Ooh, DJ. What kind of DJ? <laughs> DJ Winkleman? So if you if you you're on your uh, your computers like, there, go like house music, sound, like house, garage music, house music. Yeah, yes, house music, EDM, electronic. No music. shit. So go on go on to SoundCloud. I was um, looking at your headphones, curious, fucking about uh, what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Because those aren't just are, like you're not slumming no, it there with those things. I, I love uh, it, Marsh uh, Nick Mello. Yeah, so it's uh, soundcloud.com forward slash mover, M-O-V-E-R-E. Mover. So mover is Latin for movement. Mm. And, uh, I, I mean, so, we listen so to Blade versus Sandstorm at least once a day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a big thing around here. Like, a VG. Oh, I'm in. Fucking VG. So you can pull Made to Move episode 30 because I just made that this weekend. Oh, no shit. I love it. I love it. I'm fucking in, dude. Man, I, I used to be super into that stuff, man. We used to, really? uh, yeah. And we, now uh, you're just a douche because you're not. No, like. It's a burn. Uh, Here's dude, the thing. I saw like, uh, and I'm going to totally age thing. myself, but I saw like Paul Oakenfold. Uh, oh, I saw yeah. like Legends, tall, dude. Tall Paul. I mean, dude, I saw Tiesto. I've seen all these people. Now I've been married for like 10 years. So like I'm probably like 10 years removed. But like, man, like we used to travel around and go see all that stuff. I loved it. Well, if you like house music, then you'll like these. I'll tell oh, you that right We're in. Awesome. So. Yeah, we'll load it up. And if you're looking to expand, you know, if you're looking for a mentor in the DJ scene, look up yeah. uh, DJ Muscle Boy. <laughs> yeah. I love fucking DJ Muscle Boy. <laughs> we had him on the podcast. Yeah, Nick, have Did you heard you? of this man? No, it's kind of like a goofball. Like I think it's, It's, you know what? Don't hate me if it's fucking terrible and insulting. Okay, so 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 he's a DJ snob. He's a uh, he's a DJ muscle boy. He's a dude from Oslo. He's from Norway, and it's all like uh, a bodybuilder. Techno dance. Video, you gotta watch the dude, videos, dude. It's, it's like fucking hilarious. Homoerotic, but like good bro. And and uh, <laughs> we had the dude on our podcast. It was it was pretty he's funny. Like, Why the fuck am I? Yeah, honest? he's like uh, weird. Like he's like I just like to get pumped. And one of his songs is called Pump. Mm-hmm. Pump. I can see and that my, one. Uh, he's Norwegian. Yeah, he's from uh, oh, yeah Norway. That's a great accent as well. Oh, uh, dude, he's uh, <laughs> the, the world's most muscular DJ. Yeah, and he actually drops it. He's like the world's most muscular DJ. Yeah, it's epic, dude. Oh fuck! <sighs> it's, Put the uh, cookie down. Uh, he's like, <laughs> so he drops see, like some sit-ups. He drops like fitness inspiration in there. It's awesome. I just imagine like if I went to a gym in Oslo, as you go in, everybody's like in you know spandex and tights and strange colors. It just plays DJ Muscle Boy. I would locked in the seventies. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I fucking love it. And this segment's great. I hope we use this on a podcast. Uh, now Callie's getting all this up. You think so? Drop on, drop on, drop on, drop on. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Nick Winkleman is available on all social media under the convenient handle at Nick Winkleman. And be sure to follow the Irish Rugby Football Union progress on social media. Just look for at Irish Rugby. Until next time. Bye.